Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, August 16th. We begin with a look at the dark side of the internet, specifically the spread of online hate speech. We catch up with Dr. Abby Benlolo, CEO of the Abraham Global Peace Initiative, to discuss the issue and if government legislation is needed to address online hate speech in Canada. Are the hiring practices of Canadian industry getting in the way of promoting a diverse workforce? We hear details on a new survey on the topic from HR specialist Kate McGregor, Chief Research and Innovation Officer from WithYouWithMe.com. Problems continue with the ArriveCan app, which is mandatory for all travelers entering Canada from abroad. We hear details on the issues users are having with the app from the travel lady, Leslie Cater. And finally, today marks 45 years since the king left the building. We discuss the impact Elvis Presley had on music and pop culture close to 50 years after his death with music commentator Eric Alper. Legislation to stop harmful and vile hate speech spreading online. Joining us to discuss is Avi Benlolo, Director of Philosophy, Founding Chairman and CEO of the Abraham Global Peace Initiative. Good morning to you, Dr. Benlolo. Good morning, Andrew. Thank you very much for having me on today. Thank you for being here. Now, you recently wrote an article for the National Post regarding why legislation is needed to stop the spread of online hate speech. Why is legislation needed and and what would it look like? Look, I know that uh, the issue is controversial today more than ever. And of course, you know, a lot of the feedback, frankly, to my article um, you know, has has been one that uh, is is opposed to that kind of thing. On the other hand, uh, minority groups uh, living in this country who are facing harassment uh, in the Jewish community, facing anti-Semitism, um, you know, they feel that a tool is necessary to regulate uh, hate speech. It's not all speech. We're all believers in free speech. Free speech forms our democracy of course, um, you know, but there are there is speech that crosses the line, such as when you are calling for the genocide of a specific group or you're fomenting hatred towards a particular uh, group that can incite violence. Dr. Benalolo, can you give us an idea of the response to your article? What sorts of things have you heard of you good, bad or otherwise? Oh, man. Actually, the response has been very interesting because it actually validated exactly my argument. If you would believe uh, some of the response was very anti-Semitic that I received. And so that in and of itself, somebody posting anti-Semitic comments uh, below my article uh, just validated exactly what it is that I'm saying. If you can feel... Uh, in this country, you know, and put out your name and and so forth, that it's okay uh, to, you know, uh, to really um, harass somebody, call them very, very vicious names, which I will not repeat on your show, uh, in as much as I believe it would be interesting, um, you know, and justify, in fact, violence against your community, uh, which is, uh, you know, one of the comments that was made, you would understand why it is that I believe that legislation is necessary. Here's, here's the bottom line. The bottom line is that if you look at history and you understand that, um, you know, what starts with words when it comes to all forms of genocide, when it comes to all forms of war, usually ends with violence. And so, you know, I used in my article, you know, because I always draw on this from a knowledge point of view, uh, the Holocaust, where Adolf Hitler and his and his um, 
regime essentially were the first promoters of, of digital hate. What do I mean by digital hate? Really, it was a mass industrial scale. They used airwaves, radio airwaves. They used, of course, microphones and big uh, gatherings. They used the media unbelievably extensively, you know, uh, on covers of magazines and newspapers on a daily, uh, on daily, just, just a daily dose of hatred against uh, the Jewish population. And so that, of course, uh, influenced the masses, as propaganda often does. And and what what happened after that, of course, everybody knows there was the genocide where six million Jews and millions of others uh, were murdered in concentration camps. So we know that words can turn into violence. Our concern, of course, is now, you know, there is an even greater proliferation with online hate and social media. Uh, what may have taken you know years to build up now takes nanoseconds in social media, and the youth of today are subscribing to this. Nobody has a problem anymore uh, calling another person a name, and that's an issue for us as a society as a whole. You know, we as a as a country were built on the ideology of pluralism, of compassion, of peace, of human rights. In my occupation, as I travel the world, um, you know, people tell me Canada is the beacon for human rights. And so we should uphold those standards. And I believe that upholding those standards is creating a much more compassionate society. Unfortunately, we need rules around that society, as we need rules around almost every other thing in, in, in our society. Huh. Interesting. I want to ask you this, though, because walking that tightrope, and I can see some people saying when it comes to legislation involving speech, uh, how do you draw that line between free speech and hate speech? Because I think that, yeah, people don't want to be censored, but hate speech, in my mind, is, is a whole different animal. It's got to be a delicate balance, I would think. How, how is that approached? Yeah, look, it is it is a delicate ba- balance, and there is no perfect answer. You're not going to get a perfect answer from me, and you're not going to get a perfect answer from you know the politicians or or anyone else. Um, you know, there it's it, we we don't want to see censorship. There's there's no question about it. I mean, you know, as as a country, this is what we pride ourselves on, on being able to really express ourselves, and and this is what our Charter of Rights and Freedoms is based on. Um, but here's here's uh, the thing: we we there need to be particular red lines. You know, if you're calling to kill somebody, if you're calling for genocide, um, you know that's a problem that is a that is a real uh problem if you're pushing forward uh the nazi ideology as one example that i'll just be blunt about um you know look you're seeing the shootings in the u.s in schools the recent the recent shooting in the tops market um was done with white supremacist ideology where did this person get get the ideology a lot of it was online and and so you see that now repeatedly um you know whether it's attacks on Christchurch as an example or or at mosques or synagogues uh by many of these white supremacists it is that ideology that is based on nazi ideology and comes from online and so um that is being you know the proliferation of that is quite extreme unfortunately and it's you know you would think in 2022 you would think 
that, you know, we've, we've grown up, that we've matured, that we're educated. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the reverse seems to be happening. If you look at all the statistical trends, uh, hate crime, even towards the Asian community, which is, you know, or the black community has skyrocketed. You know, Statistics Canada just came out with a report demonstrating mm -hmm. police reports around this country that have shown that hate crime is increasing. And so the question for all of us, you know, on the good side of the fence is how do we deal with that? Right. We need to deal with it with a lot of tools, education, shows like this and talking about it openly, uh, informing our youth, etc. But also, unfortunately, as humanity, we still need tools to regulate us. Yeah. I hate to say it, but we still need tools to cross the street, not to drive too fast, not to, you know, these are tools that regulate us in our daily lives. And, and that is something that is very important, particularly with the increasing uh, tide of hatred. Very interesting discussion. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Avi. We appreciate it. Okay, with pleasure. That is Avi Benlolo, Doctor of Philosophy, founding chairman and CEO of the Abraham Global Peace Initiative. Traditional methods of hiring often stack the odds against diverse candidates. That comes from Kate McGregor, Chief Research and Innovation Officer of With You, With Me. And Kate joins us with insight and ways to help inject diversity into our hiring practices. Good morning to you, Kate. Good morning, Andy. I uh, hope you're having a very good morning. You as well. This is interesting to me. I, I'd never thought of it. Uh, but uh, you say that there's issues with traditional hiring practices and it comes to diversity. Uh, Indeed. It stacks Indeed. So How does it work, though? So I, I guess it depends on you know the the organisation that you're you're involved in. But diversity, equity, and inclusion itself is a hot topic right now um, globally, and not just in Canada. But we um, we as the Canadian um, you know organisational uh, functionality that we have, we have a I guess duty of care, as it were, to really be allowing diversity in our organisations to continue to to grow and develop. Um, so With You With Me um, has just released its diversity, equity and inclusion um, study and what we found is that there are a number of things that we can be doing better as employers to see the growth of diversity, equity and inclusion in, in our organisations. Um, and those things include, um, you know, creating flexible working arrangements, um, allowing for, um, you know, more equitable and inclusive recruitment practices um, by leveraging things like aptitudinal and psychometrics assessments. So, so give us an example of, you know, for example, I, I'm trying to hire, what could be getting in the way of, of getting a, a candidate of diversity that I'm doing incorrectly that I could maybe easily tweak? If we talk specifically about the neurodivergent community, um, and so these are individuals that don't necessarily process information the same way as a neurotypical person would, um, they tend to be less successful um, in terms of a recruitment process than a neurotypical person. And that is simply because they may not be as good as um, uh, writing a resume or, or getting through those initial quote-unquote gates, as it were, to be considered by an organisation. And so by leveraging things like psychometrics assessments at the beginning of your recruitment flow, you're more likely to find candidates that are um, aligned to the positions that you're looking for without the bias associated from trying to leverage a, a CV, as it were. 
Kate, are there industries that are getting this right currently, or is it across the board that you're, you're seeing these issues happen? Look, I think we're all trying to do the best we can as HR professionals, um, but we have a long way to go, Andy, when it comes to this kind of thing. There isn't one specific industry that is doing better than others. I think with the technology industry in particular, there is probably a little bit more success being had, and I think that's just the nature of the um, of, of those types of organisations. They tend to be more innovative. They tend to be more open to trying new things. But I think, you know, holistically as a... As a group of employers, we can be, be doing um, a lot more and, and definitely be better at it. I know that, you know, you're focused and lasered in on our country, but if, if we were to take this question and take this issue beyond our borders, Kate, are other mm-hmm. countries doing doing better than, than we are? Um, honestly, no. So obviously, I'm sure you can tell by my accent, I am <laughs> Australian. And so this was something we released our um, CNI so in Australia, it's referred to as DNI um, report with you know pretty similar findings for Australia um, in the sense of you know Australia needs to be kind of looking at the way that we recruit in a more inclusive light, um, and I think the innate biases that comes from traditional recruitment practices are starting to you know are starting to become something that's going to stop or stifle organisations from being successful in in attracting and retaining. Um, the talent that they so desperately need. We're going to direct people to withyouwithme.com if they want to find out more about what you do, Kate. And in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thank you for having me on. That's Kate McGregor, Chief Research and Innovation Officer of With You, With Me. Love the opportunity every second Tuesday to catch up with the travel lady, Leslie Cater. Very good Tuesday morning to you, Leslie. How are you? Good morning, Andy. I'm wonderful. Thank you. I want to ask you about this Arrive Can app because mm-hmm. I have the Arrive Can app. I've used it twice. I used it most recently last week when we, uh, me and my family came home from Phoenix, Arizona. And right. I made a little bit of a mistake. My five-year-old, I read something online and I said to my wife, my five-year-old does not have to be in the Arrive Can app. But the fine print was they don't have to be fully vaccinated because they don't have the opportunity to be vaccinated yeah. at this point. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I got kind of a snag there, and they said, well, let, let you go through. But I found it a little confusing. Uh, but yeah. you say that the problems with the Arrive Can app are uh, plaguing many people. Well, but they are indeed, and they've had a lot of hassles at the land border with people driving in. So just to cut down on the lineups, they have, uh, they're giving a one-time exemption. So if you're driving back into Canada and you forget to do the arrive can or you don't do it properly, you won't get quarantined. They'll give you one chance to get it right and uh, give you a little booklet showing you how to do it. But, of course, with flying in, you've got to have that arrive can before you board your flight home because the airline has to see that you've got the right credentials to get into Canada. And this has caused some confusion for a lot of older people who are maybe not that digital. Because, you know, whether or not it's your phone, I don't know if you can do it on a computer, but the phone or the tablet, you're good to go. But you'd also have to have cell service, have a phone or a tablet. And, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, uh, you know, Wi-Fi from your hotel. There's a lot of different requirements that maybe the older set might not have. Exactly, that's right. And now ArriveCan have said that they're going to start adding customs and immigration information to the app. That will just be for uh, Toronto and Vancouver 
think to start with just those major airports and but they're going to bring all the other airports on stream so now i'm thinking oh you know it, it would be good it will speed things up but i can just imagine that there's going to be people having some issue with that and it's not a paper form so that makes it a little bit more difficult for some well, and the other part that I was, you know, I forgot about from the time I had done it about a month and a half ago is you have to also upload, you know, for example, some some proof of vaccination and get a picture of your, your passport. Yes. And again, it's not to try to be ageist, but I mean, I know a lot of like my, my mom, for example, who's in her um, getting close to her late 70s, would yes. have a heck of a time on her own with this. So it kind of gets yes. in the way. Yeah, exactly. We've had phone calls from clients who are just saying, I don't do this stuff. You know, who can help me? I kind of want to say to them, call a grandchild because oh, yeah. they're the ones who take us around this route. <laughs> so, so to be clear, Leslie, if I was coming up, you know, from Montana today yes. and yes. I did not have my ArriveCan app filled out yes. to answer the questions, I'd get a pass. But yes. if next week I were to come up the second time following that, I would literally yeah. be forced into quarantine. Exactly. And how long yeah. is the quarantine? Two weeks. Now, it varies who you speak to. I've, I've heard 10 days, but I think federally it's two weeks. Ooh. Yeah, it's, uh, this is the problem, Andy. This is what makes our job so interesting, is that everything is constantly changing. Uh-huh. So you have to be completely up to date. I was called aside for random testing on my last trip when I came back in and I was positive I had no symptoms but then I had the phone calls checking that I was quarantining at home and I had to be home for 10 days wow yeah yeah and you know what you're doing so imagine the rest of us <laughs> yeah exactly Boy, it's, it, I to know what I'm doing anyway <laughs> it, it's a moving target it changes it seems to almost day to day at least week to week so we appreciate your time and bringing us up to date with what we need to know thank you so much Leslie no problem Andy have a great week you too that is Leslie Cater she goes by the moniker of the travel lady you can find out what she does online at thetravellady.ca Today marks 45 years since the death of Elvis Presley. And joining us to explore the impact and legacy of the king of rock and roll is music commentator and host of At That Eric Alper show on Sirius XM, the man himself, Eric Alper. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. How are you? Good. We're going to get into the impact of Elvis on pop culture and why the Elvis icon he stands the test of time in a second. But I want to put this question to you, Eric, that we've put to our listeners all morning and the staff here on Mornings with Sue and Andy. And that is, current day, is there a musical artist, current day, that if they were to pass in the next, you know, several months or a couple of years, would have the same impact that we'd be talking about 45 years after their death? Is there anybody out there like that? Wait a second. I, I get to ask those silly questions on Twitter. <laughs> I don't get to answer them. Um, well, yeah, uh, Paul McCartney. He would probably be the only one left that I could say would have an absolute devastating, more than 24-hour passing trending topic on Twitter. He is somebody that has to be up there in the upper echelons when it comes to the greatest songwriters of all time. Certainly one of the greatest musicians. I would put Paul McCartney up there with Beethoven. I would put him up there pretty much with anybody else in terms of 
the astonishing amount of great songs he wrote, the musicality, the lyrics that that he was able to touch billions of people around the world um, since 1964, and still to this day making remarkable, critically acclaimed albums Mm -hmm. as of last year and is touring the world. I I think maybe Elton John, but I think Elton John more because of the person that Elton John turned into from his drug-infested, alcohol-abused 70s, where he completely turned his life around and became a beacon of light for AIDS research and so forth. But I think music, music-wise, music I, I don't think anybody can touch Paul McCartney. Yeah, but, but I'm not challenging you on the, on the talent of either Paul McCartney or Elton John, Eric, but is not the mystique that we have seen the career play out of Paul McCartney. We did see the career, obviously, yeah. of Elton John play out. But Elvis dying at 42 years old, is there not that sense? And is this part of the mystique that we knew there could have been so much more ahead of him? Um, to a certain extent, it all depends on, on how you feel about Elvis. If, if you know how handsome he was, if you recognize his contagious moves, his addictive personality, the fact that he could sing a ballad, then a country song, then a gospel song. I mean, his only Grammy that he ever won was for gospel. It wasn't for rock and roll. Um, The fact that he can do dance music and R&B in the beginning certainly brought him that worldwide wealth and fame that we all know. In 1977, he was just really a faded image of that his his comeback special um in 1969 was seven long years um you know since then so the the ability um to say well you know maybe he would have cleaned himself up maybe he would have done this maybe he would have gone you know disco maybe he would have gone new wave maybe he would have you know lost the weight gotten healthy gotten off drugs um and and was able to become um important again um i'm not so sure that the yes men that were around him and the troubles that his own doctor kicked um, kept beating him drugs as if it was supposed to keep him into a stupor. I'm not sure he would have been able to get out of that. Very mm-hmm. few musicians and rock and roll stars do. So it's interesting. Uh, we could have continued this conversation for another hour. We're, we're tight for time, but thank you so much, Eric. We're going to direct people to thatericalper.com and, of course, online at thatericalper, A-L-P-E-R. Thanks so much, sir. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. You bet. That's Eric Alper, music commentator and correspondent.